1 Peter verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply and from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like a newborn babies crave future spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like also like living stones, are, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's bow our heads in prayer once again. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and we profess our ignorance. We recognize how little we know and how much we need to know. And so, Father, we pray that by the work of your Spirit that you would illuminate these passages for us and that we may hear what is commanded, and we may resolve in our own hearts that we will not do it our way, Father, but we will do it your way. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.
I think it's very significant that uh, Peter just doesn't stop at the business of where the Christian's focus is to be. But he, as it were, he, uh, ex- he actually unpacks that because there are hindrances to us maintaining that focus. And also, as it were, we need to hear more because it's fairly hard for us just to be keep thinking about maintaining that focus. So one of the good things about the Bible often is just sort of exposing things that are impediments so that we can demolish that and then it's actually putting in place how we are to sort of think and focus. So we come now to this question of follow through on the focus because that's exactly what Peter is doing. And he begins by talking about the question of obedient children. It's just interesting the way that this word pops up every now and then so that the Christians were saved to obey and just as if you've got parents or you've had children in days past that you recognise how important it is that children should be obedient not to play with things that are going to sort of you know, blow the car up or whatever's going to happen set fire to the house. And this is the great concern that Peter has that you must not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So this question is, comes out, of course, that Paul talks about in Romans 12, that we must not be conformed to the present age. Christians were always meant to look a bit like geeks compared with the rest of the culture because the way the culture does it is, when you look at the end result, is absolutely hopeless. It talks about our former ignorance. We were as stupid as we looked. I shouldn't say that to you, but I thought that myself. As stupid as our look in terms of our former ignorance. And we did things that were totally unproductive. We realised that the sins we did never really brought us the satisfaction we wanted, but we kept doing them. As it were, the hypnotic effect that sin has on people. And so this is the call, the business about being obedient children and we are not going to live in the way that we were driven before. So this is the, ought to be the, uh, the business about a point above on section 14 uh, through to 21. The first one really ought to have a dot there with 14. Not to be conformed. Don't be a BC Christian when you're an AD Christian. Don't live before Christ. Live post. And that's what's being called, that's what Christians are being called upon to do this. But the God who called you, who is holy, he requires that you have holiness in this word that comes up again and again, sometimes translated conduct, but it means lifestyle. This is what God wants. This is what God is like. God is a holy God. You are his children. And therefore he wants you to have a holy lifestyle. In all areas of life, but the Christian person as it were, doesn't have uh, parts of his life that are somehow sectioned off and are not in keeping with the question of being an obedient child, an obedient child. So this is important for us to recognise <coughs> that, <coughs> pardon me, that the Christian faith is a faith that behaves. And it does so, does not to be our little Jack Horner, you know, put in your thumb and say, what a good boy am I? But the reason that we're meant to have that holy lifestyle 
or may use the word wholesome lifestyle is because it is beneficial. It is beneficial to both us and it's also beneficial to those around us. And the reason that this is being said in verse seven, verse 16, God says, you shall be holy because I am holy. If you saw my son, you'd recognise him straight away because he's good looking like his dad. <coughs> he's been our genes one over my wife's side of the family and, and as a result, you recognise. Well, this is the business. People need to recognise the character of God because like father, like son and like daughter. And that is the calling that comes to us from the book of Leviticus. You must be holy because I am a holy God. And therefore the Christian calling is to one of personal holiness. And I want to use the word perhaps wholesomeness and that we don't have, as I said, sectioned off areas of our lives in which there's a no-go area for God. It really doesn't matter how I live in this world. And the Christian person here, the Apostle Peter, is calling upon people to review the way they're living. Because it's one thing to have this focus, but what is one of the implications of this focus on the future on the Holy God is that this sense of wholesomeness in our lives comes to the fore. So this question of being a look-alike, look-alike father, look-alike son, and that's what God is seeking from us. So we don't have, as it were, areas of our lives in which uh, somehow the, the character of God is not touched. The next point we're told about the question of impartial judgment. If you call upon God as Father who judges each person impartially according to their deeds, conduct yourselves with a sense of awe at this present time. Now we have this tradition in our own thinking that there is no assessment of our lives. But do you remember what Jesus said? Well done, good and faithful servant. So we need to recognise that God himself is an impartial God. And he is a father and we call upon this father and therefore we're commanded we must conduct ourselves with a sense of awe and accountability to God. You know, no one tells me what to do. That's part of our culture. How dare you judge me? How dare you tell me what to do? And even sometimes in the Christian church, people think they're free agents, and no one tells me. But the point is, God tells us how we are to live, and more than that, God is the one who requires accountability. And I think in our Protestant tradition, they're so worried about the question of good works, and this will come on later, and certainly in 1 Peter, that we forget the character of God. And the command of God is that we are to conduct ourselves with a lifestyle that is a wholesome lifestyle. Because one day we will stand before him. Will he say of us, well done, good and faithful servant? That's the important thing. Just as the book of the Revelation says, blessed are those who die in the Lord, even so they rest from their labours and their works follow them. And so this is something I think that, that we, we can just lose off the screen in our thinking. And it is a sobering thing. And that's why Peter says that with the sense of soberness about the fact that the whole of our time here on earth that we are to conduct ourselves 
with their sins that we are accountable to God. And people may say, no one tells me. I'm not accountable to anyone. I'm a free agent. And Peter says, no, that's not the case. So how we live matters. It matters supremely. And what we do is a matter of great significance as far as God is concerned. And this is not the only piece it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Peter said it's necessary for all of us to stand before the assessment of Christ. And that will be based on the terms of how we've lived. Now this is, I said, this is a measure that's completely fallen off our thinking. But it is we are accountable to God. Now of course God will be able to judge the business of our motives are right. It didn't always come out the way we wanted to. God will probably be more gracious than we can be sometimes and sometimes we're very hard on ourselves. But the point is, it's not just simply we have the swipe card and it's going to sort of sail in. But God is the God who requires of those who are his children that they recognise now that life's no longer about us. And God has plans and he has things for us to do. And that, of course, Peter will continue to unpack it. But this is the true grace of God. It's just not simply we all just sail there and uh, simply that there is no accountability. Therefore, this, of course, is a sobering thing for us to think about. It's not the only place that we are told that we are that our conduct will be accessible because God will judge each part impartially according to the question of life. And we do have alternatives of Christianity, which just says, love God and you work, go there, do this, and do what you like. Now that is not the Christian faith. That's not the true grace of God. And this is why Peter says his reason, what he's trying to do, is to exhort Christians. Okay, you've heard this word now, now move ahead. You may not have done it in the past, but now's the moment for a new beginning. And this is what he's calling upon the church as it's reviewing, exhorting them, saying, right, this is how it is. Now from now on, this is how you must live as a Christian person. You are not your own captain of your ship or the master of your destiny. You belong to this God. And so, right in the, in the, to the verse 21, Paul talks about the fact that the way you lived, you were ransomed. See, what you could do with a slave was, you saw a person enslaved, and you took your financial resources, and you redeemed that person. And that's what Jesus did. He said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. Jesus has redeemed us. And we were redeemed, we're told, or ransomed, from our futile ways. And how were you redeemed? It was not money, as it would be in terms of the slave situation, but it was with the precious blood of Christ. It cost God the death of his son to redeem us. And therefore this question of how we live, we cannot live B.C. in view of the fact that we are A.D. And the ransom price was an incredible price. Because... If you look through the verse 21, the business that, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, this is the son. He was manifest at the last time for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that our faith and our confidence for the future might be in God. 
So here is someone who's done all this for you. And this has to make a difference as to how we now live in terms of our lives. Recognising the useless way we lived before. Recognise the enormous cost of the death of God's own Son on the cross and how we have been raised so our faith and again our hope and confidence is in the God who is trustworthy. So this is the question of following through the implications of grace because some people think implications of grace is <clears throat> I can get on with life and that's how it should be. And if you listen to some of the stuff on the television program, if you can't sleep at four o'clock in the morning, stomach full of Joyce Meyer, <clears throat> Benny Hinn, you can have all these people and you listen and you will not find this at the centre and heart of their teaching. It's all about, listen to me and make sure you send my credit card number <clears throat> and it's all about your best life now. And it's pernicious. And I think of the fact that there must be many people who are watching it and people who are giving money to some of these causes and people who are believing this is what the gospel and this is what the Christian life is. But Peter recognised this great need to pull people back. You've got to follow through the implications of grace. You cannot be the same person again. <clears throat> so now it's how you live that really matters. And... Peter's saying, right, now's the moment, boys and girls, now's the moment to now move on and to recognise this reality and from now on you must live your life <coughs> with this sense that you are accountable. It will be a gracious and loving judgement. It will nevertheless be that blessed you are when you die and your works will fall. It's not as if it will all be lost, it's all beautiful. <clears throat> I've said more than once in the Bible, <clears throat> the reminder, we don't, our works don't go ahead of us as our justification. <clears throat> That's not being said, as it is in other religions, but what we are follows with us. And there's, as it were, an assessment of who we are. Now we don't like to hear that, <clears throat> but just that it's there, and that's how it is, and if we don't like it, it's our problem, it's not God's problem. <clears throat> and it's a big problem for us. If you want to talk about that later, I'm very happy to do so privately because it probably comes as something of a shock across the stage. <coughs> now, <coughs> I want to talk about fair dinkum Christianity. You know what the word fair dinkum is because we live in a country where everyone's fair dinkum and there are no worries. <coughs> what else can we say? <coughs> but what, what does Christianity look like according to Peter? Well, the number one thing in verse 22... <coughs> Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth <clears throat> for the purpose of sincere love to your, to your brothers. Love one another, that's the command, earnestly from a pure heart. <clears throat> so here we have not faking it with other Christians. Being polite and being smiling and being nice is not loving. And some people sometimes confuse the truth. Because here is a call that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're not loving one another because it's to our advantage. But we are people who are to do it lovingly and it's to be, there is to be a sincere love for the brothers. 
the words uh, sincere comes from the Latin term to mean without wax. Statues that had a chip in, they get wax and they just cover it over <coughs> and that cell was genuine. A hot day comes and then it sort of melts. <coughs> so it's not, it's not, as it were, totally true granite or marble, which was the intention. And this is what happens, that we are to love obediently and that is to come about our, our obedience to the truth is, is to manifest itself in terms of a brotherly love and to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're not nice to other Christians because it does something for us. <coughs> and this is to be the nature of the church. It's very interesting. <coughs> Pardon me. How in the first century it was just so easy for churches to fall apart. And it's fascinating that the, as it were, the starting point in terms of genuine Christianity is a genuine love and care for one another. And it's wonderful when we meet once again with our brothers and sisters. And we may have had a tough week, but we know that we are loved. And we demonstrate the love of God and we care. And we don't do it to manoeuvre and to manipulate, to have our needs met. But it's to be out of a genuine love. This is family. You may not have had a good one. That doesn't matter. This is family. These are your brothers and sisters. And therefore the characteristic of the church is, <coughs> is to be one of genuine love for one another and genuine care. And that's why if something difficult happens, we all feel it. We're part of a body. If something wonderful happens and there's a blessing of God to someone, we're so glad for them. <coughs> because there is a sincere heart. Now, it is a great new beginning because sometimes people have come from families where they've manipulated siblings in order to achieve objectives <clears throat> and things that have happened that have not been good. But here's a new beginning, a new family, and the call for us is that we don't fake it with other Christians, but there's to be this genuine love in our hearts for one another. The second thing is to be no fear in verse 23 because we have been rebirthed. And what God has done for us is not, well, we hope it's worked. No. When a baby's born, a baby's born. That seems to be the case. The head comes out and there's the baby's born. Well, we've been rebirthed. <clears throat> we've come through. And therefore this question is we have no fear because God has rebirthed us. This is a work of God, as we saw previously, the work of Father, Son and Holy Spirit in bringing us into the kingdom. And therefore the Christian person who has been reborn knows that there is no fear because it's a genuine birth. And it's a great statement that's made in terms of the fact that there is no faltering. Do you realise that God never had to issue a second edition? He never had to put an errata slip because there were mistakes. Because his word is a word that is true. It was before the beginning of time. It will be throughout all eternity. That while all flesh is as grass and all the glory like the flower of the, the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls. In other words, death comes. But the word of God remains forever. And this is the Christian's confidence. 
we have an infallible guide that doesn't have to be adjusted according to different cultural traditions. It remains forever true and while this life is so transient, and we know we used to sing as scouts, the worms go in, the worms go out, they go in thin and they come out stout and had this hideous laughter about the question of the end of life. Well, that's the flowers of the field come, they disappear. A generation comes, a generation goes. There are enormous changes that occurred in the ancient world and in our world. But the reality is, this word is a living and lasting word. And it will always be true. And of course, Peter in this case relates this to the question of the word of the gospel that was preached to us. You you could sell your house, you could sell your car, and sell everything you've got, and put all your money on the gospel, and you know it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be a fizzle. That's what's being said here. This is a lasting word, and therefore the Christian person, we have confidence, not arrogance, but confidence in terms of this living and lasting word. So Peter is following through this question of, of how we are to focus. That becomes critical for us. And we're to have a genuine Christianity, not one in which we are just being nice. And you know the outsider is not as stupid as you think he looks. If an outsider comes into the church, he can see whether people are just being nice in the same way they might be if they're going down to the bowls club or something like that and being applicable. But there's a big difference when you come into the church and you know <coughs> that people really love each other. Once going to a church in Holland and I knew straight away something was wrong here. As soon as I walked in. I didn't never been there before. There's something that just doesn't work here. You go into other churches and you feel this is family. These people love him. In the case of the church in Holland there'd been a terrible fight going on. Incredible the way that things that were happening. So we found out later, because I said to my friend, what's wrong in this place? And he spread out the story. So this business of a genuine love is so critical in terms of our church. If we want our church to grow, we want more people to become Christians, they've got to know that this is a home. This is family. This is a remarkable family because it's so different. It's been rebirthed by God. And all these people have been born again, as it were, from heaven. And this is a supernatural family. And therefore the Christian people are to genuinely love one another. The next thing in terms of our focus is the business that the funeral service every Christian must do. We're told in verse 2 <coughs> that we are to put away, and the word that's used is the word for digging a grave. We've got to dig our own grave. That's what we're being told here. We don't jump into it. That's not what's being said. But there are certain things that really have to be buried. And we are told that we are to dig a grave and put into it there are five things that the Christian has to do. The number one thing we're told is that we are to put away evil. We are to determine, no, we're going to, as we have this big thing in the garden, this hole, and we're going to throw in it evil and we're not going to have anything more to do it because death is the separator. And so we are to bury evil. The next thing we are to bury is the question of being deceitful. 
The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And the Christian person says, no, I'm not going to be a deceitful person. I'm going to be an open person. The third thing we are to bury is hypocrisy. As someone said, always be sincere whether you mean it or not. That's hypocrisy, isn't it? Flanders and Swan, the English comedian, said that, always be sincere whether you mean it or not. And the concept of, of hypocrisy comes from the word of uh, hypocrites in Greek, which means an actor who wears a mask. And the real person is underneath, but you never get to see the real person. And that's what we're being called upon to do. We must bury this question of hypocrisy. So we're not playing a role. We are being, as it were, genuine. And the third thing we're to do, it's a word that's perhaps hard to translate into our English language, but it's the business about being a harmful person. Someone who sets out to actually get revenge on other people. Someone who's going to sort of damage other people. And the Christian faith is not about that. But I can think of church contexts where people have been deeply damaged by people who've set themselves out to do exactly that. So that's the fourth thing that we are told, that we are, as it were, this business of harming others. That's to be buried. That's how you live B.C., but you don't live like that A.D. And the fifth thing we're told that we are to bury is the business about slander, of evil speaking. How much damage is done from Christians speaking evil of others? We've got to sort of put a stop to that sort of thing. And these are the things that Christians are to preside over this burial service, that they themselves have thrown into the coffin. And that's the image we have here. The five pollutants, potent pollutants, that can make a difference. And we're told we are to bury all of these things in our own lives. So it's a good list to look at. Because on the other side, if we bury these pollutants in verses 2 and 3, we will feed on a healthy diet. Like newborn infants. What do they do? They yell out because they want milk. <clears throat> they want hamburgers. They want milk. Because that's what they need. And that's what we need because we are told that we are to long for the pure spiritual milk that we may grow in terms of what it means to be a Christian. The word salvation here is a variety of meanings. It has the word for health in the ancient world. It has this word for wholeness. And of course we always think in salvation as purely as redemption from sin. But here it has a wider meaning that we may grow up in terms of this business of the Christian life. Because the last thing Peter wants is a church full of diaper Christians. They're still babies. They can't control themselves. And so this is a great call to us, the business about feeding on a healthy diet. And the thing is, if you eat unhealthy food, you don't feel like healthy food. So all that other stuff, toss it away. And we're told that we are to be people, if you do this, and the way it's constructed is bury this because the other is contingent upon it, it's dependent upon it. And so if you get rid of the junk food, 
then there will be a longing for really good food. And you know, if you've been on the, your diet for a hundred time, hundredth time or something, <clears throat> and you realise you're eating all this stuff that's so unhealthy and you don't, it just doesn't satisfy. And then you, as it were, you go on to good food, you realise how beneficial good food is and how nourishing it is. And that's the call that we have here to feed on a healthy diet, a healthy spiritual diet that died as a Christian person. That is contingent. Bearing this, therefore you will then sincere, you'll have a sincere thirst for what is uh, a healthy growth for you as a Christian person. And this is all part of the whole business of, as it were, Peter is saying, look, this is a new day. Boys and girls, this is a new chapter. Okay, we got the focus right, we come to this clinic, and we're having this day where the focus is right, and this is what we want you to do, focus on that. But to focus on that, there are some things we need to give attention to. And so this is why he runs through the issues about genuine Christianity and also the need to have a genuine appetite for food that's going to nourish our own Christian lives. Now, Peter can't help but coming back to Jesus. <clears throat> it's very interesting in the way he writes. It happens in 1 Peter, happens in 2 Peter. Because he's spoken about the whole business of the Christian people, the Christian life and the focus, and he comes back to the centre of the Christian focus in verses 4 to 10. And he says that you've come to Christ, reminding them of their conversion. He's a living stone. He was rejected by men, even by Jewish people who knew that Old Testament so well and knew all the early press releases of the prophets. He was rejected, but in the sight of God he was chosen and precious. So this is who he is. He is a living stone. And what's more, you are not blockheads. You are living stones as well because of your attachment to Christ. And therefore you are to be built up into a spiritual house. And the uniqueness of the Christian faith, compared with all other religions, it is concerned about the question of building one another up and of building up ourselves. Construction terminology is unique to Christianity. And the important thing is that we should be built up and we are concerned about construction. We've had destruction beforehand through sin and therefore the Christian life is meant to be exactly this. So we come to Christ and you yourselves are to be like living stones to be a spiritual house. You are also to be a holy priesthood. Remember the priests, had the Levites, had to be holy. So God's own people are meant to be holy so that they can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So here the Christian person is involved, every Christian, we talk about the priesthood of all believers. It doesn't mean to say everyone's equal and we all have an equal vote. That's not what's being said. But the priesthood of all believers is about this whole question of offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable. And in the Old Testament there were spiritual sacrifices that were unacceptable to God blemishes and things like this. And so the Christian person is to offer up, as it were, the spiritual sacrifice. And we shall see this evening we come to that, that has very much to do 
with the good works of God's people and the way we live. So we are to build an, a lasting edifice, uh, one that is acceptable to God. Because in verse 6 we see that I lay in Zion a stone. It's a cornerstone. Because in architecture in the ancient world, you needed, as it were, one stone, and when that was set, it was the touchstone by which you did all the construction. There's a man, a man called Vitruvius, he's written his work on architecture. And this is the essential thing. As it were, you need to, we'd say you need to get the foundation right. In this case, it was that stone which actually determined how you take all the measurements for the actual building. And this is what is said from the Old Testament, that whoever believes in this stone will never be put to shame because they put their trust, as it were, in something that's absolutely, as it were, right on and is very, is, it is the, is the critical thing. So, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> and this honour is for you who believe but for those who don't believe, and this refers, of course, in the first century, the stone that the builders rejected, the nitwits, idiots, the very stone that God has chosen, they threw out. And this stone, of course, was something that they stumbled over in rejecting God's Messiah. And they stumbled because they did not obey the word as indeed they were destined to do. And Peter now would go on to talk in verse 8 about the fact that this is what they did, but this is not what you've done. And on this basis, he says that you are to be people who operate as, as real spiritual priests. What do you do? Look in verse 9. You are a chosen race, not spoiled brats. Okay? You're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people whom God is prepared to call his people. But the theme of the Bible is about that God will be our God and we will be his people. That's the theme that runs right through. And why are we to do this? <clears throat> what is the purpose of being a people for God's own possession? Is that we should proclaim the character of God who's called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Just as the priests in the temple proclaim the character of God, so it's the task of all God's, God's people to proclaim the character of God. It was done for us this amazing thing. You see, the issue is, there's a sea called sin. It's absolutely deadly. It kills. There is a rescue operation that God has mounted. People have deliberately jumped into the sea of sin and they're drowning. They're dying. And what we have is this great rescue operation in which the Son of God, that God has come down from heaven and the helicopter has come and the rescue indeed has given his life so that others may be rescued. And the issue is that those who've been rescued should just keep talking about it. Because if you were rescued from an event here in which you've given, up, you've given up totally the possibility of, of ever surviving and suddenly the rescue comes, you couldn't be the same person again. 
You'd want to talk about the rescue operation. You'd want to recognize how privileged you were. That God has saved you from hell. You jumped in. It was your stupidity and willfulness, but that God has rescued you. And this is something, therefore, the Christian person, because of who we are, we are meant to proclaim the, the excellency of the God who's called us out of darkness into his amazing light. You've got a new life. You've got something wonderful. And Peter's needing to remind the church because it's grown complacent. It feels <coughs> we've just got all that we need. We just get on with life. But this sense of thanksgiving to God because of this amazing event is something that is really meant to totally transform us. Because the day this happened, indeed, was the best day of our lives. At Christmas time, my wife and I, we were spending our time with our grandchildren in England, and they were tearing open their presents. Not undoing it, so we could recycle. But they're tearing open their presents, and our oldest granddaughter, my son's oldest daughter, she opened something up and she went absolutely berserk. It was this uh, high school musical unit thing. And, and she was absolutely overwhelmed by it. And I just said to my wife, what's that? <clears throat> because I had no idea. I wasn't prepared to show my ignorance. And before we knew, she'd put it on and she had the pom-poms. <clears throat> and there she is singing without the music and doing all the actions. And then she turned around and said, this is the best day of my life. <clears throat> And I was about to say, you know, sweetheart, you never had a life this was to make your best day of your life, but grandparents don't always say what they think in context like that. And then we went to the service in the church, and there she was, dear Charlotte, she was sitting in the side aisle in this church, and there she is, they start singing away in a manger. She goes into the front seat and she's sort of doing this all the way, and I'd never seen a way in a manger sung to pom-poms <coughs> in my life, actually. <coughs> And then the next Christmas carol came, and of course it was English, so they all pretended it didn't happen, and we all looked in the nave, <coughs> which is a totally English thing to do. But she came home and she said, look, she said, Grandpa, this is the best day of my life. And I thought, well, our conversion is the best day of our life. You know? And why are we not meant to go in doing the pom-pom thing? <coughs> and please don't do that next Sunday, because otherwise <coughs> uh, we know who will blame you for doing that sort of thing. But she just, she just couldn't help it. She was just so full of joy. When we look at a passage like this, this is how we should feel. That when we sing the praises of the God who's called us out of darkness, this great sense of joy and thankfulness, all the blessings of this life, but above all for this enormous blessing. Because once we were, we were nobody, we were passportless. No one wanted us. But now we are, it's all changed. And we're told that now we are the people of God. Once we received no mercy, but indeed we have received mercy. So you look at this issue and you think, what are God's people meant to look like? What's the profile of them? They're meant to be without wax, to be sincere. They're meant to have said, these other things, BC, that's stupid to live like. Let's, let's, let's have a clean-up and a toss-out and throw them out so that we can move on. And what's more, what are we meant to be look like in terms of what we, we, we actually feed our lives on? 
if people watched as much, read as much Bible as they watch TV, I think it'd probably be a big transformation sometimes. Because <coughs> we can spend so much time. I just want to quickly run through looking at a few texts. But we are meant to be those who long for this, this sincere milk of the word. If we won't, if we're entertaining sin, we lose our appetite for God's word. There's always a call in my life when I don't want to really read what's gone wrong. Then when we look at this whole question about that we, who we are, and we're meant to be the people who are joyful beyond all measure because of what has been done for us. That we were nobodies and now we are permanent somebodies as far as God is concerned. And therefore, this is for us a major challenge. And Peter recognises how easy it is for the church to slip into quiet complacency and do these things. And this letter is meant, as it were, to wind us back up again and to say to us, are we really thankful when we come and sing and we rejoice in all of God's that God has done for us? And is it the fact that we recognise that his call is out of darkness into his marvellous light? So if you look at, as it were, the profile of what we're meant to be as Christians, you see some very interesting things that come in here. And this is the profile of the Christian who sets their hope and they focus on the fact of this great future. You can't be the same person again. And that's Peter's deep concern that people will just, as it were, undergo a regression in their lives and they will step back and rather than have progress, there will be regress. And he sees how easy it, is, it happens and therefore this is something in which he calls this is the word of exhortation. It's not criticising, it's exhorting us to move on and says the past doesn't have to determine. Let's move on as Christian people and let's recognise that these are meant to be the hallmarks of the, the follow-through in terms of the, of the business of this great hope that we have as we focus on the future. Now I think it's a good test what we watch and what we read all these Christian books that are coming out. Is this the message we're getting? And we need, as it were, to feed on this because this is the true test of God. You must stand it. That's the challenge that Peter is issuing to us. We must take our stand in this and we mustn't be hoodwinked into something that is less than what God is, has ordained for us in terms of that word. And it can be, it's meant to be, as it were, a revolutionary checkup for us. Any of you want to ask any questions? Because I've raised an issue, one or two issues there that I think may have a cause of doubt in people's minds. Your pardon? Well, see, when you read about everything that God does is what? Good. Yeah. 
What did Jesus go around doing? Yeah, okay, do the same. That's the bottom line. That we are meant to be people who are given to good works. Because why are we meant to be given to good works? Why does God do good? Because good needs to be done. Why did Jesus go about doing good? Because there were needy situations and good need to be done. So why do you go about doing good? Because people need good things done. And we shall see, in terms of the next section, that how this lights up the gospel. Because they behold your good works. Well, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works. So our lives are meant to be lived, and it's liberating when you're in the street or wherever you are looking for opportunities to do good. And amongst your Christian friends, amongst neighbours, what good can I do? And when you're living like that, you're not thinking about boring old you. So you can understand that God puts a great priority on the doing of good because he does good. And you know, in Genesis, when man comes along, it's very good. Top marks, high distinction for God. And his son did exactly the same. So if we are people who are alert, we're not interested in, in those nasties, we put them aside because we want to be people whose lives are free in order to do good to others. It's not, as it were, it's not brownie points that are going to get us air miles to heaven. It doesn't say that. But what's saying is that the consequence of being a Christian is that we are all the time asking, what good can I do for others? And, you know, instead of watching Dr. Phil or something like that, or that or that maybe goes afterwards, it might be good if we were to think, well, are there any people in my neighbourhood? Are there others to whom I can do good? Are there people in the street context? And it tell you, you're not thinking about wrong things if you're walking down the street asking the Lord to give you opportunities to do something that is good. And, and I've found that. That's a liberation. And that's how the Christian life is meant to be lived. And, and, and it brings to us, as it were, an enormous satisfaction in our own lives because we're running the engine according to the maker's manual. That's how we were made. That's how his intention was, that we should be those who serve the soil of Genesis 2. We should be bestowing benefits on others. We should be thinking about other people. And that's why there's this great emphasis in 1 Peter, and we shall see it comes up again and again, of the business of doing good. It's not an air mile thing, but it's good is done because good needs to be done. Yes. Yes. Well, Scott, thanks for raising that because it is an issue and it 
it does seems to be that if you look at, say, the the, uh, uh, the 2 Corinthians 5.10 passage, because if we don't understand one passage, it's worth going to another passage. That's what the Westminster Confession says. We get clarity by looking at a comparable passage. <coughs> he says, for it's necessary, the word in the Greek means it's divinely necessary for all to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So each may, each may receive and it says all of us in the Greek. It means all people. Also, now that referring to Christians in this point. That each man may receive the due of what is done in the body, whether good or evil. And I wish that wasn't there. It's not determining destiny. I just don't know. I don't think the Bible gives us the, any further clarity on the issue. But what I think it is saying to us is it's not that our eternal destiny is dependent upon it. But I think it would be, I don't know whether we've got memories to look back with regret in heaven that we dissipated our lives so much. I just don't know. But there is this call for us to do um, that we are accountable. Because it's obviously in the Corinthian church people thought they were never accountable. And you think of the Jesus story about, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've used the resources you've got. So perhaps the word judgment's not a good word, maybe the word assessment of our lives. And our works follow us. So these are passages which, I, I, they are arresting for us. But what it's saying to us is, you know, Okay, you heard this word, you know what it is, now you better sort of, you must be someone who is given to the doing of good. Because the alternative is to the doing of sin. And you can think of Christians, say, like in 2 Peter 1, that Peter goes on to talk about the Christians there, <coughs> that they die with very little assurance. Because they haven't added to their faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and patient endurance all those sorts of things. If these things are yours and are fruitful, then they provide a rich entrance for you into the kingdom of heaven. And I can think people who've died, uh, who've been theologians and others, people who've died, unhappy people. But I think of my good friend Viola who died because of a productive life. She died a joyful person. So, I, I, th these are texts that, that they do pose a challenge for us. And and what it's going to be like, I don't know, but all I'm saying to myself is, well, look, don't put, don't, don't put to the test. Make sure you're someone who recognises that you, you your life will be assessed. Now, I think that, 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 that it will be a loving thing. In fact, there's a very interesting story told of uh, on television, this man who had a near-death experience. He was a Christian. And he came back and he said, that Christ put his arms around him and then the whole of his life passed in front of him. So that was a very interesting comment about the sense that his life, his life had come back to him. Now I think I'd want to put perhaps some credence in a situation like that. It will be a loving and a gracious saviour who's been tempted in all points as we are without sin. And he knows and he invites us to come and receive forgiveness. And grace to help us through things. So he, it is that is the high priest in heaven we have. 
there will be, we, we may be more condemning of our things at this time. We think we may have not done well. We may have done more well than you thought. But the point is, that's what I see as essence of accountability. I don't think the scripture goes beyond that, but, but it does talk about that Paul had said all must appear, but he says all of us in the Greek must appear before. Yes. Well, I agree. And not throwing your under your your underwear on the ground so your wife has to pick it up, all those sorts of things. Yeah, that's a very good work too. Um no, I mean it, it is the business, yes. And I just think of my daughter, she's got four children and, and she has an enormous amount to do. She's the minister's wife, an enormous amount to do. She's given to that. So I agree the business that that's another area of the raising. It's also the person in the workplace who does their work well, not for themselves. Yeah, so it is a broader concept than just, I suppose, my concept of walking down the, the road and keep saying to myself, well, is there anything good I can do? And, uh, yeah, so it covers beyond that, yes. How do you mean the believing side of our work? <clears throat> but see, faith, faith is the root, isn't it? Works the shoot and the fruit. <clears throat> that seems to me what the New Testament teaches quite clearly. <clears throat> that if there's a root, there's a shoot, there's fruit. <clears throat> and the question, of, the question of fruit is important. And that's why Jesus said some will produce 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But there's a whole unproductive area on the other side. So I mean, I think we've, we, we have these, um, as it were, if we put this together, we simply say that, that I've ordained you that you should go forth and you should bear fruit. <clears throat> that's the whole intention of the Christian life. And this is what Peter, we shall see, moves on to, uh, the business about the the business of the lifestyle of the Christian is one that's a good lifestyle, it's an attractive lifestyle, it's a useful lifestyle, it's one in which things are done. Now, it's not being done in order to get brownie points. Good's being done because good needs to be done. And I think what these other texts are saying, they're warning people against this complacency of saying, well, <clears throat> as long as I've got the swipe card, it doesn't matter how I live, after all, life's all about me and I can just get on with life and I don't think about other people and I'm number one, I always have been, I always will be. That's where I think the distinction is because Peter is defining this as the true grace of God because it has a consequence to it. And the consequence is the business of a new life, new lifestyle. That's what I see sort of coming out in this passage. Sorry, you had a question. That's right. Did you have to bring our attention to that verse? 
I mean, I think what no, there's no sense in which the question of people's salvation is at stake on this issue. That's not the point. <clears throat> but I think there is this business, there is a, a statement about the question that we are accountable for how we live. And there's a call for us uh, to be those who are good and faithful servants. So life's not about self-serving, it's other people serving, serving meals, doing all those sorts of things. And the Christian person is, is to be motivated it's not earning us any brownie points. They just say we do good because good needs to be done. This is what God has done for us. He's done all this good for us so that we don't do evil. We've got to abandon that temptation of the two ways to live in the New Testament uh, because Peter will talk about that duality when we come to the next section. So it is a thought we wish wasn't the text wasn't there, but it is. So I think it's worth taking notice of. They're meant to, and in some cases Peter's doing a situation in the church where it's not flowing, and so he's doing, uh, uh, as it were, a clinical checkup to sort of say, well, you people haven't buried these things, because that's an impediment. If you're speaking evil, you're not doing good. If you're engaged in trying to harm someone, you're not doing good. So, as it were, this is, as I see, a ground clearance operation. You're getting rid of all this stuff, moving it out of the way, so that people, as it were, there's going to be the business that will flow on the good, the good works for the Christian. It's a problem with us because it, it's, it's, it's quite clear when we get to the next verse tonight is that, that you can live one of two ways. One in which is self-centered, earthly fulfillment and lust, and the other that is other people-centered. And that's the alternative that uh, Peter sees as the possibility for Christians and he's wanting to make sure they abandon that. Because it, it, it just seems that the church in the context it says, well, we've got Jesus, so that's all we need. It doesn't matter if we live fleshly lusts. If it doesn't matter how we live, God will always be gracious. So I think it's, it's meant to be a wake-up call for people who've misunderstood the doctrine of grace. And I think it's meant to be an assurance to us that when we die, it's not all lost. And that's what I think is so assuring, that the works follow us. Because you think of uh, people who you think you go to a funeral and think, oh, well, you know, vanity of vanities, what's life really all about? You do all these sorts of things and then it's gone and then a year later everyone's forgotten this person. They don't think about them. And you think, no, that's not how God sees the issue. So I, I do take comfort. There are things that in, all in our lives we wish we hadn't done. And we've repented of those. But the point is, it's not as if we are we are stewards, we are accountable. And I think that's a missing element in terms of Christian thinking. And this concept of steward, stewardship, I think, comes out in terms of what Peter is talking about. Yes. 
Well, I, I think that the Christian person is that that if we do good works, that they will glorify it to others. They will glorify God in the day of visitation. <clears throat> so one of the most powerful elements in evangelism is the good works of God's people. And Jesus reiterates that when he says, let your light so shine. You must let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. <clears throat> so there is that element. But all I know is that on the day of visitation, God will use the good works of his people. And that's how I became a Christian, because in my government department, a young man got on with his work, and he was discriminated against in some points in promotion. He never said anything. Uh, I, he never said a word to me about being a Christian, but I knew he was a Christian, and I thought I'd give anything to be like that. <clears throat> and he was just doing his job. But it stood out in my thinking. And so I knew the gospel was true because I'd seen it. When someone came and preached, I didn't need to be persuaded it was true because I'd seen the gospel according to Ken. <clears throat> and I also think of my friend Val. She was the same. You know, I mean, she was converted. She just changed. So God uses that. And, uh, and if we look at what happens, we can see how it is the first point of call in 1 Peter is the community. And we're doing good in the community, as you'll see this evening. So it does pose a challenge for us. <clears throat> uh, but there are lots of people going around who don't do good, who do lots of harm. Uh, but the Christian, it seems to me that uh, that's the call of the Christian. And that's why I think that 1 Peter, it's, it is a challenge to us. Because it runs counter to some of the thinking we have. Yes. <clears throat> I, I wasn't there. <clears throat> okay, I'm giving you a joking premise saying that. <clears throat> no, all I know is this, that if people live according to the light of their conscience, that comes out in, in, in Romans chapter 2. On the day of judgment, people's conscience will accuse them or excuse them. Because who gives the gift of conscience to every child coming into the world? Christ does. He lightens every child coming, every person coming into the world. So the question of uh, heaven or hell is that the people's own conscience will accuse them or excuse them because they have deliberately suppressed the truth. Now we know that in, say, the, in, in, on the day of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew, that, that there were saints who rose from the grave, <coughs> who were waiting for the resurrection of Jesus. So that's another picture we have from the Old Testament, of the New Testament, 
and the saints went around in Jerusalem bearing witness to the resurrection. <clears throat> and we forget that when we think about the proof of the resurrection was that there were those who Christ's resurrection guaranteed their resurrection. So I think the question you ask, we don't have the full picture, but all we know is no one will be in hell because there was a mistrial. Okay? No one will be there because <clears throat> the jury got it wrong. Their own conscience will accuse or excuse them. So I think it's very hard to project back, but we do know in 1 Peter's we've come to see that that uh, that Christ did preach to the spirits in prison in terms of his death and resurrection. So it's a hazy area we don't know, but we do know the reality for the present time. And knowing that reality, then we need to give some fair warning. Okay, well, we certainly have got something to think about this afternoon and to ponder in terms of what the biblical passages are saying. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have prayed that your word would throw light on our path, and we pray for things in which we may be in slightly new territory in our thinking. And therefore, Father, we pray that we may, those who search the scriptures, and realize that your word is this living and lasting word that is true for all eternity. And so, Father, we pray that what we've learned, that we may fulfill. We pray, Heavenly Father, that issues that are raised that are uncertain, you'd help us to continue to search the scriptures so that we may have clarity. Because we thank you the secret things belong to you, that the things that have been revealed have been revealed to us so that indeed that may be the touchstone by which we live. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.